Thank you, Mark. The financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 was a watershed event for the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world. The extraordinary actions they took have been described alternatively as a natural extension of monetary policy to extreme circumstances or as a problematic exercise in credit allocation. I've expressed my view elsewhere that much of the Fed's response to the crisis falls in the latter category rather than the former. Rather than re-argue the case, which I suspect would resemble preaching to the choir here, I want to take this opportunity to reflect on some of the institutional reasons behind the prevailing propensity of many modern central banks to intervene in credit markets. As always, these remarks reflect uh, my own views and the views expressed are not necessarily those of my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. There's widespread agreement among economists that a vigorous monetary response can be necessary at times to prevent a contraction from becoming a deflationary spiral. Financial market turmoil often sparks a flight to monetary assets. In the 19th and 20th century, this took the form often of shifts out of deposits and into banknotes and specie. Under a fractional reserve banking system, this necessitates a deflationary contraction in overall money supply unless offset through clearinghouse or central bank expansion of the supply of notes. In modern financial panics, banks often seek to hoard reserve balances, which again would be contractionary absent an accommodating increase in the central bank reserve supply. In both cases, the need is for an increase in outstanding central bank monetary liabilities, and I emphasize liabilities. The Fed's response during the financial crisis was not purely monetary, however. In the first phase, from the fall of 2007 through the summer of 2008, its credit actions were sterilized. That is to say, lending through the term auction facility uh, beginning in January of 2008, um, and lending in support of the merger of Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan Chase that spring were offset by sales of U.S. Treasury securities from the Fed's portfolio, leaving the monetary base unchanged. Note that such sterilized actions are the equivalent of issuing a new U.S. Treasury debt to the public and using the proceeds uh, to fund uh, the lending, which um, I think quite clearly constitutes fiscal policy. It wasn't until September of 2008 that the supply of excess reserves began to increase appreciably. This expansion was accomplished through the acquisition of an expanding set of private assets by the Federal Reserve, loans to banks and other financial institutions, and later mortgage-backed securities and debt issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. While some observers described this phase of the Fed's response as a standard monetary expansion in the face of a deflationary threat, the Fed's own characterization often emphasized instead the intent to provide direct assistance to dysfunctional segments of the credit markets. Clearly, an equivalent expansion of reserve supply could have been achieved via purchases of U.S. Treasury securities, that is to say, without conducting credit allocation. Like the Fed, the ECB, and many other central banks have also pursued credit allocation in response to the crisis. The impulse to reallocate credit certainly reflects uh, an earnest desire to fix perceived credit market problems that seem to be within the central bank's power to fix. My sense is that the Federal Reserve's credit policy was motivated by a sincere belief 
that central banks have a civic duty to alleviate significant ex post deficiencies in credit markets. But credit allocation can redirect resources from taxpayers to financial market investors and over time can expand moral hazard and distort the allocation of capital. This implies a difficult and contentious cost-benefit calculation. But no matter how the risk, how the net benefits are assessed, no matter how you judge that trade-off, central bank intervention in credit markets will have distributional consequences. Central bank credit allocation is therefore bound to be controversial. Indeed, the actions taken by the Fed over the last few years have generated a level of invective that has not been seen in a very long time. Critics have sought to exploit the resentment of credit market re rescues for partisan political advantage. While it's easy to deplore politically motivated attempts to influence Fed policy, we need to recognize the extent to which some measure of antagonism is an understandable consequence of the Fed's own credit allocation and credit policy initiative. The inevitable controversy surrounding central bank interventions in credit markets is one reason that many observers have long advocated keeping central banks out of the business of credit allocation. Central bank lending undermines the integrity of the fiscal appropriations process. And while U.S. fiscal policymaking may not inspire much admiration these days, it is subject to the checks and balances provided for by our Constitution. Contentious disputes about which credit market segments receive support and which do not can entangle the central bank in political conflicts that threaten the independence of monetary policymaking. The independence that, monetary, that modern central banks have to control the monetary policy interest rate emerged at, right after World War II, it emerged in stages. The Treasury Fed of Cord of 1951 freed the Federal Reserve from of the wartime obligation to artificially depress the Treasury's borrowing costs. The collapse of the gold standard, we've heard about that earlier this morning, in the early 70s, and the attendant bouts of inflation led the Fed in 1979 to assert responsibility for low inflation as the primary objective of monetary policy. The independent commitment of central banks to low inflation provides that nominal anchor uh, that substitutes for the anchor formerly provided by the gold standard. The substantial measure of independence central banks have been given was a key element in their relative success at sustaining low inflation over the last few decades. And while there are a range of plausible views now about inflation risks going forward, I think it's clearly the case that inflation performance over the last two decades, say, was far superior to that of the 70s and early 80s. In fact, many countries have adopted frameworks that hold their central banks accountable for a, a price stability goal, while allowing them to set their interest rate policy instrument independently in pursuit of their goals. This instrument independence within an accountability framework has been critical to insulating monetary policy making from election-related political pressures that can detract from longer-term objectives. The cornerstone of central bank independence is the ability to control the amount of monetary liabilities it supplies to the public. But as a byproduct, many central banks retain the ability to independently control the composition of their assets as well. For many modern central banks, standard policy in normal times is to restrict asset holdings 
to their own country's government, their own country's government debt. Some hold gold as well, a vestige of the gold standard. Others hold foreign exchange reserves. In addition, many make short-term loans to banks, either to meet temporary liquidity needs from time to time or as part of clearing and settlement operations, both vestiges of the origin of central banks as essentially nationalized clearinghouses. The ability of a central bank to intervene in credit markets using the asset side of its balance sheet creates an inevitable tension then. The desire of executive and legislative branches to provide governmental assistance to particular credit market participants can rise dramatically in times of financial market stress. At such times, the power of a central bank to do fiscal policy, in essence, essentially outside the safeguards of the constitutional process for appropriations, makes it an inviting target for other government officials. Central bank lending is often the path of least resistance in a financial crisis. The resulting political entanglements, though, as we have seen, create risks for the independent operation of monetary policy. At the heart of this tension is a classic time consistency problem. Central bank rescues sh serve the short-term goal of protecting investors from the pain of unanticipated credit market losses, but they dilute market discipline and distort future risk-taking incentives. Over time, small one-off interventions set precedents that encourage greater risk-taking and thus increase the odds of future financial distress. Policymakers then feel boxed in and obligated to intervene in ever larger ways, perpetuating a vicious cycle of government safety net expansion. The conundrum facing central banks then is that the balance sheet independence that proved crucial in the fight to tame inflation is itself a handicap in the pursuit of financial market stability. The latitude the typical central bank has to intervene in credit markets weakens their ability to discourage expectations of future rescues and by doing so enhance market discipline. Solving this conundrum and containing the impulse to intervene requires one of two approaches. A central bank could seek to build and maintain a reputation for not intervening in much the way the Fed and other central banks established credibility for a commitment to low inflation in the 1980s, even in the absence of a legislative constraint to do so. Alternatively, explicit legislative measures could constrain central, banker, central bank lending. The Dodd-Frank Act took steps in this direction by banning Federal Reserve loans to individual non-bank entities. But reserve banks retain the power to lend to individual depository institutions and to intervene in particular credit market segments in, quote, unusual and exigent circumstances, unquote, through credit programs with, quote, broad-based eligibility, unquote. In addition, the Fed can channel credit by purchasing the obligations of government-sponsored enterprises, uh, such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Constraining central bank lending powers would appear to conflict with the popular perception that serving as a lender of last resort is intrinsic to central banking. But even here, I think our historical doctrines and practices should not escape reconsideration. The notion of a central bank as a lender of last resort derives from an era of commodity money standard, when central bank lending in a crisis was the most effective way to expand currency supply to meet a sudden increase in demand. Indeed, the preamble to the Federal Reserve Act says its purpose is, quote, 
to furnish an elastic currency, unquote, not to furnish an elastic supply of credit. The Fed could easily manage the supply of monetary assets through purchases and sales of U.S. Treasury securities alone. While it might sound extreme, I believe that a regime in which the Federal Reserve is restricted to hold only U.S. Treasury securities purchased on the open market is worthy of consideration. It might seem easy to criticize such a regime by reference to what it would have prevented the Fed from doing in the recent crisis. But that's the wrong frame of reference, I would argue. It's an ex post rather than an ex ante perspective. Such a regime, if credible, would over time force changes in market practices, which would alter the likelihood and magnitude of crises and the behavior of private market arrangements during a crisis. It would strengthen market discipline and incent institutions to operate with more capital and less short-term debt fund funding. Changes we're now trying to achieve, but through regulatory means alone. The relative costs and benefits of such a regime may be difficult to map out conclusively, but I believe this trade-off is well worth studying. So in closing, let me observe that 10 years ago, my former colleagues Al Broadus and Marvin Goodfriend argued that the design of central bank asset policy is, quote, part of the unfinished business of building a modern independent Federal Reserve, unquote. The 1951 Treasury Fed Accord, as I said, gave the Federal Reserve independent control of its liabilities, a necessary ingredient in monetary policy independence, but the accompanying power to use the Fed's asset portfolio to intervene in credit markets is a threat to that independence and a threat to financial stability. Sorting out the conundrum of central bank asset policy should be high on the agenda for all those interested in improving the practice of central banking today. Thank you very much.